Thank you, Matt, and good morning, church family. So I mentioned a while back that Daniel and I were reading through the Chronicles of Narnia series. We finished that about a month ago, all seven books. And it turns out that my favorite part of the whole series is the last chapter of the last book. That chapter is entitled, Farewell to Shadowlands. And in this final chapter, the children find themselves suddenly transported into this indescribable paradise. They don't know how they've gotten here. Okay, a moment prior, they had been traveling along on a railway through England, but now they are in this new, amazing land. And they learn the name of this new land. It's called the New Narnia. The deeper they go into it, the more wondrous it becomes. Finally, one of the talking animals can't help himself, and he just bursts out with this exclamation. He says, I've come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land that I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it until now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. Then this animal laughs and he says to the children, Come further up, come further in. And that refrain repeats itself over and over again throughout the final chapter. Further up and further in. The idea is that the new Narnia is brimming with wonders. And no matter how deeply you get into it, you have never exhausted all that there is to see. Further up and further in. And as everyone is basking in the wonder of this new Narnia, Aslan the lion finally explains why the children are here. He says to the children, there was a railway accident. And he says, the term of your life is over. In other words, back in England, they had all died in a tragic accident. That's why they had been rushed into the new Narnia. But it wasn't bad news for them. Aslan goes on. He says, now the holidays have begun. The dream has ended. This is the morning. Then the chapter concludes with these words. They come from C.S. Lewis. He says, now for us, for us the readers, this is the end of all the stories. But for them, the children, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now, at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and in which every chapter is better than the one before. Now, friends, today we are in the final section of the book of Revelation, which also happens to be the final section of the whole Bible. And this section explains what will happen to us after all of God's judgments are complete and this present world finally comes to its end. And in my view, this is the most exciting portion of the entire Bible. In this section, we will learn that the end of our lives in this world, and indeed, this whole present world itself, that when this all comes to an end, it's not the end of our stories. No, it's just the end of the title page and the, the first chapter 
of the story that God has written for each of our lives. We too are part of a great story which God has written. And it's a story that will go on forever and ever. A story in which every new chapter will be better than the one before. So I invite you to turn now to our text as we begin looking at this wonderful story that God has for us. Today we're in Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21, and we're looking at verses 1 through 8. If you're using one of the Bibles that we provide under the seats, you will find this on page 1041. I'd like to begin by reading through the passage with you, and then I'll pause for a word of prayer. We're going to need God's help to fully understand this text. And after our prayer, we will study it together. So I begin reading verse 1. This is the Apostle John writing. He says, And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Verse 5, And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. Verse 8. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now let's go to the Lord in prayer together. Our Lord, what a remarkable ending to the story of the Bible. Lord, would you help us this morning as we work through it together line by line? Would you fascinate us with the contents of your word this morning? Would you help us to see with our mind's eye the picture that you are laying out for us here? Would you help us to to build that anticipation for the day when this present world finally passes and the new world comes? Lord, might the knowledge of this glorious future impact our day-to-day living in the here and now? Lord, do a work in each one of us this morning, I pray. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
All right, now returning to our text. I think the, the thing we notice immediately is the repetition of this word, new. We read here of a new heaven, a new earth, a new Jerusalem. And then in verse 5, Christ says, I am making all things new, a whole new creation. And so what we learn here is that once God's purposes for this present world are through, this world is going to be set aside and a whole new creation is going to come. Now, commentators debate the nature of this new creation. Some believe that God intends to annihilate this present world and then create something entirely different, ex nihilo, to replace this present earth. But others believe this speaks instead of a radical renewal of the existing order. And I favor this latter view for a number of reasons. First of all, the word translated new in this text is the Greek word kainos. The word simply means fresh or pristine or superior to what came before. So this word does not require the idea of annihilation and replacement. It could speak instead of a renovation of the present heavens and earth. But then secondly, and, and more importantly, I think this idea of renovation better fits with the overall storyline of the Bible. So let's think about the Bible story with me. Um, please think about it with me. Genesis chapter 1, God creates the heavens and the earth. And then he declares it very good. Then Genesis 3, this very good world falls under the curse of sin. And everything is marred after that. But right after sin enters the world, God comes again with a promise. And his promise is not that he is going to annihilate this world and then start over again with something different. No, the promise is that he is going to send a Messiah who will reverse all of the damage that sin has done. A Messiah who will refashion the world, make it the way it was at the start, and even better. And the whole hope of the Bible from Genesis to Revelation is that God is going to refashion the world, not annihilate it and replace it, but that he's going to fix what is wrong with it, restore it to what it was before. Which is why Acts 3.21 tells us that the whole world awaits, quote, the time for restoring all things. And also in Romans chapter 8, verses 20 and 21, which says, the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. In other words, the whole world is waiting not for annihilation, but for liberation from its sin. Then thirdly, I believe this idea of renovation better comports with what the Bible says about our own personal destinies. You see, every one of us is born dead in transgressions and sins, but God's plan is not to annihilate us and to create new people who are sinless. No, God's plan is to redeem us through Christ, to purge all of the sin and its effects. In fact, the book of 1 Corinthians calls us new creations in Christ. We are new in the sense that the old nature or the old self has passed away. The new self has come. We've been born again by the Spirit of God. 
We have a new spiritual trajectory. So if this is God's plan for our individual lives, I think it makes sense to say that this would be God's plan for the rest of creation, not to annihilate and replace it, but to renew and renovate it. And then fourthly, I also think this comports best with the rest of the Bible's vocabulary. Randy Alcorn explains. He says, quote, God has never given up on his original creation. The entire biblical vocabulary makes this point clear. Reconcile, redeem, restore, recover, return, renew, regenerate, resurrect. Each of these biblical words begins with the re-prefix, suggesting a return to an original condition that was ruined or lost. And so once more I say, God's plan is not to obliterate this world. It's not to obliterate us. It's not to start over with something brand new. Rather, God's plan is to take the the world that he has already made, this world that has come under the curse of sin and death, and to expunge from it all of the effects of sin's curse, to make it like new again, to make it pristine, to make it pure It's in that sense that God is going to bring a new heaven and a new earth. And so, friends, after God's purposes are finished for this present sin-cursed world, once he's finished with, with our lives in this world, he is going to give us a new redeemed world in which to dwell. And then John adds this at the end of verse 1. He says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven, first earth had passed away. And, he adds this, and the sea was no more. Now, what an interesting statement to add. The sea was no more. I believe I know what this means. You see, right now, about 71% of our planet's surface is covered in water. Much of this standing water comes from an act of judgment ages ago. The Bible talks about it in Genesis chapters 6 through 9. Scriptures tell us that the world continued to descend into a state of corruption until it reached a point where all the thoughts of men's hearts were only evil continually. And so God determined that he would destroy that world. He would literally wash away the world's corruption. Wash it away with water. And so in the days of Noah, he brought a global flood. Only one family was spared. It was Noah and his family. Noah, his wife, their sons, their wives, everyone else washed away in that flood. Where is all the, flood, all the flood water from Noah's day today? Well, it's still here. It did not disappear. It's still here. It's in the great saltwater oceans that cover 71% of our planet. What, Gen- excuse me, what Revelation chapter 21, verse 1 tells us is that when God renovates this world, he is going to take away all of those ancient flood waters. Now, the next chapter of Revelation tells us there will still be water in this new world. There will be rivers, lakes, there are going to be trees and fruit and all kinds of things. 
But the great saltwater oceans, the remnants of the great judgment flood, those shall be taken away. Why? Because when God gives us our new world, He isn't just going to purge the world of all of its sin and and subjection to, to corruption. No, He's even going to remove all of the memory of His judgments. You realize that every single day, as we look at our present world, we see the remnants of human sin, we see its destructive effects, and we also see the scars on our world from God's judgments on sin. When God remakes this world, He is going to remove not just the sin, but all of the scars. He's going to remove all of His his judgments, all of the memory of His past judgments on this world. And so as John looks into the future, he sees a new heaven and a new earth. He sees that the heavens and the earth that we inhabit now have passed away. And he notices immediately that this new world no longer has any of those great seas. Water, yes, but no longer the waters of the judgment flood. And then verse 2, John also notices a new city. It says, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. The New Jerusalem, he sees. Now, friends, no city features more prominently in the Bible than the city of Jerusalem. This was the capital city of the nation of Israel. This is where King David and King Solomon, Israel's two greatest kings, reigned. This is where our Lord Jesus made his triumphal entry. That's where he publicly declared himself to be God's promised Messiah. It was in Jerusalem that Christ was arrested and tried and crucified, and and then where he rose from the grave. It was here that the Spirit came down at Pentecost and where the New Testament church was born. It'll be the capital of Christ's millennial reign, And now we see Jerusalem's name appearing again, only this time it's called the New Jerusalem, and it's one that comes from heaven to earth. John sees this new city descending from heaven, so heaven itself is now coming down and touching on the earth. And New Jerusalem is breathtaking in its beauty. It's like a a bride who has prepared herself for her wedding day. Here's the significance of this, found in verse 3. John writes, And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. So here is the significance of this new Jerusalem coming from heaven to earth. It signifies that now God will dwell with men. No more will there be a separation between God and mankind. He will be here, visibly, tangibly, here on the earth with you and me. Now, in the first work that he ever published, Jonathan Edwards wrote this, quote, God is the inheritance of the saints. He is the portion of their souls. God is their wealth and their treasure. 
their food, their life, their dwelling place, their ornament and diadem, and their everlasting honor and glory. They have none in heaven but God. He is the great good which the redeemed are received to at death and which they are to rise to at the end of the world. The Lord God, He is the light of the heavenly Jerusalem. He is the river of the water of life that runs. He is the tree of life that grows in the midst of the paradise of God. The glorious excellencies and beauty of God will be that Uh, will be what will forever entertain the minds of the saints. And the love of God will be their everlasting feast. The redeemed will indeed enjoy other things, but they they will enjoy the angels and will enjoy one another. But that which they shall enjoy in the angels and in each other, or in anything else whatsoever, will be that which... That which yields them delight and happiness will be what they see of God in them. Sometimes this is called the the beatific vision, the blessed sight of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And friends, this is what we are heading to. When this whole present world comes to an end and it all passes away, when God gives us a new heaven and a new earth and a new city... What he will be giving us is access to himself. He'll be giving us himself in a way that we have never enjoyed him before. His real, visibly manifested presence on the earth. His face-to-face presence. And all of the joy that will come with that. Friends, our everlasting future is going to be an everlasting existence of drawing ever closer to the infinite joy of the Holy Trinity and basking in it. That is our future. Which is why verse 4 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. You see, sorrow will be impossible in eternity because all of the causes of sorrow will be gone. There will be no more sin, or sickness, or war, or pain, or goodbyes, or death. No longer anything to cause us grief. It'll all be over. It'll be nothing but the joy and fellowship of the saints and angels as they bask in the glory of God in Christ. And it will never grow boring. No matter how long we are there, no matter how further up and further in we travel, we will never grow tired of the new experiences in that great new world. Friends, this is what we are heading toward. And if you're ever tempted to doubt this, don't. Don't. Look at verse 5. It says, And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things New. So everything that we are reading here in in this final section of Revelation, these words, they don't come from me. They don't even come from the Apostle John. These are the words of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He speaks them. John records them. And we read them. 
You can trust the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, he says, next part of the verse, write it down. Okay, make a permanent record of this. For these words are trustworthy and true. The word trustworthy here means these words are worthy of your full confidence. The word true means these words are honest, genuine. My friends, these are words that you can ground your faith in. These words are to be anchors for your souls. They are words to cling to when life becomes almost too difficult to bear. You know, back in the 19th century, there was a Christian businessman named Horatio Stafford. And on November 22nd of 1873, his wife and four daughters were traversing the Atlantic Ocean by ship. And as they were traveling across to England, preparing for a family vacation, their vessel was struck by an iron sailing ship, and it sank within 12 minutes. All four of Horatio Spafford's daughters drowned in that accident. As for his wife, the rescuers found her unconscious, floating on a plank of wood. She was taken to South Wales, where she immediately sent a telegram to her husband back in Chicago. You see, he was going to finish up some business there and then join the family in a few days. She sent him a telegram that included these words, saved alone, saved alone. Now, can you imagine receiving a telegram like that? The anticipation has been building as your family has been planning this amazing vacation on the other side of the world. And then the day finally comes and your wife and your, your children embark and you're just going to wrap up a few things at home, and then you'll get to join them. But instead, you get a note saying, your four daughters have all died, and your spouse barely survived. Well, Horatio set off at once to be reunited with his wife. One particular day, on the voyage across the Atlantic, the ship's captain summoned him to the bridge of the vessel. And pointing to his charge, the captain explained that they were at that moment passing over the very spot where Horatio's daughters had drowned. Spafford looked down at the waves and he reflected on his loss and then he returned to his cabin. Then he wrote a hymn. The hymn begins with these words. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrow like sea billows roll. Whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. How could he write such words? How could you hear that all of your children have been lost and still write, it is well with my soul? Here's how he could do it. Listen to the final stanza of his hymn. He writes, And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight. The clouds be rolled back as a scroll. The trump shall resound. And the Lord shall descend. And now he quotes Revelation 22, verse 20. It says, Even so, even so, 
it is well. It is well with my soul. You see, friends, our eschatology has a real-world application to our lives here and now. What got Horatio Spafford through this unspeakable tragedy? It was his knowledge of the Scriptures. That final section of the Bible where we learn of a new heavens and a new earth, and on that day there will be no weeping, there will be no mourning, there will be no pain. Death itself will die. And we will be reunited with all of our believing loved ones, and together with the angels we shall see the glory of God face to face. This is what he was able to cling to as he suffered this unspeakable loss. It's what we have to cling to, friends. Hold on to these words. These words are trustworthy and true. They come to us straight from the mouth of truth personified, our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who sits on heaven's throne, which means that he has the power to bring these words about. Many men make promises. Most of them don't keep their promises. But Christ is not like an ordinary man. This is the eternal Son of God. This is the one who loves you more than any other has loved you. The one who voluntarily left heaven's glories, took on human flesh, suffered and died and rose from the grave for you. His words are words that you can bank on. Now we come to his invitation, verses 6 through 8. We start with verse 6. John writes, And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. In other words, do you, do you hear the promises of these verses? Do you hear about this new heaven and new earth with no sin and no misery? And as you hear these words, do you find yourself hungering for them? Do you thirst for this reality? Do you thirst for the beatific vision? Do you thirst for the day when you will no longer wrestle with a sinful nature? Do you long to be satisfied with all that God is for you in Christ? If you thirst for that, if you hunger for that, then take it. It is yours. These promises are for you. Take hold of Christ. Take Him in repentance and faith. Repudiate your life without Him. Repudiate your vice. Just flee to Him. That's all you have to do. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life, and it won't cost you anything. You just tell him, I want it. I want it. You do that with repentant faith, and he'll give it to you. This verse is almost in a direct quote of Isaiah 55, verse 1, which says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk with, without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which 
does not satisfy? Why, why would you be tempted to give yourself over to things that will not last and that cannot satisfy your soul? Come instead to the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to Him. He offers milk and honey, and He offers it without cost. My friend, if you are thirsting for this, take hold of it now. And verse 7 reads, To the one who conquers, you will have this heritage. And I will be his God, and he will be my son. Now, the one who conquers, that's just another title for a born-again Christian. The Christian is the one who conquers all things. He conquers the world, the flesh, and the devil by God's grace. Romans 8 says we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. To the one who has come to the waters, who has drunk deeply of what Christ has to offer him, to this one, he will find everything written here to become his own inheritance. He will have the living God as his God. He will be God's child. Then we might ask, what about the rest? What about those who thirst to satisfy their vice? rather than to come to Christ. Well, verse 8. As for the cowardly, okay, those who melt under the heat of persecution, choosing to abandon the life of faith rather than to persist in it through the hardness of life, it says, for the faithless, that is, those who will not believe in Christ, for the detestable, those who revel in their sinfulness. And for the murderers, the sexually immoral, idolaters and liars, for all those who, who flaunt the laws of God without repentance, for all of these, what about these kinds of people? End of verse 8, as for all of them, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. You see, my friends, there are only two destinations for the human soul. The new earth and the second death. And there is no other destination. And your everlasting soul will be in one or the other location. And your fate will be sealed based upon what you do with the promises of God in Christ. Are you believing in Him? Are you loving Him? Are you hungering and thirsting for what He has to offer? Or do you hunger and thirst for the bread that never truly satisfies? My friend, please seek that you may have a part in the new earth. Please settle this matter in your own heart so that you can say of your relation to Christ, It is done. I have closed with Christ. Now I am His and He is mine. This is my inheritance. And then work out your salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that all of this will be yours at the end of life's journey. My friends, God has written a great story for His people. A story which no one on earth has read. A story which will go on forever and ever. And which every chapter will be better than the one before. Won't you become a part of this great story? Let's bow together in prayer. Our Father, we thank you for this text. 
And would you please work it into our hearts so that as we go through the trials of life, be they personal or economic or spiritual or social, whatever the the trials that we may face in life, that we would always have this at the forefront and that it would help us to persist. Help us, Lord, to reach that finish line that we might inherit the ultimate prize, the sight of your glory in the face of your Son, and the comfort of knowing that we shall never be separated And that for all eternity, there will never be an experience other than joy, happiness, and peace. Lord, help us to hang on to that. For those who are still wavering, still not sure whether they should should bow to the lordship of your Son to declare Him king, over their lives, to turn from vice and to embrace all that he offers. Lord, please so work in them that their desires would change, that they would desire nothing but to have you. Convince them, Lord, that you are greater than everything else, greater than all that this world offers that you are something worth having now in this life as well as in the life to come. Convince them of that. And Lord, help them to pray to you today to take hold of that and then to share the news with others so we can walk alongside them and, and help them on their next spiritual steps. Lord, this is our desire. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.